0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from the Washington Post. I'm hey, it's Philip Rucker at the Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This Post. is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 5th. Today, what it means when the federal government polices the police, and the new airlines taking flight in a pandemic.
1: The United States Department of Justice is a federal law enforcement agency comprised of thousands of law enforcement officers who collaborate with and support our colleagues throughout our nation's police departments. We are uniquely aware of the challenges faced by those who serve as police officers.
0: Last month, the Justice Department launched two investigations into local law enforcement agencies, the Minneapolis Police Department and the Louisville Metro Police Department.
1: It will determine whether LMPD engages in unconstitutional stops, searches, and seizures, as well as whether the department unlawfully executes search warrants on private homes. It will also assess whether LMPD engages in discriminatory conduct on the basis of race or fails to provide public services that comply with the Americans with Disability Act.
0: Attorney General Merrick Garland framed this as the start of a process to rebuild trust between marginalized communities and police.
1: All of these steps will be taken with one goal in mind, to ensure that policing policies and practices are constitutional and lawful. That is the same goal as that of our investigation in Minneapolis and of every pattern or practice investigation that the department undertakes.
2: Part of what the Department of Justice is doing now to address that is it has restarted its program for conducting pattern or practice investigations of police departments. Under the Obama administration, this had been a very robust practice. The Obama administration brought 25 investigations of of police departments, and the Trump administration brought one.
0: This week, we talked to Christy Lopez. She's a professor at Georgetown Law who used to work for the Justice Department looking into local police forces accused of violating civil rights. We wanted to know what it looks like to do this work on the ground and whether she thinks the feds are the solution to the problem of bad policing.
2: I think the Department of Justice now correctly recognizes that in a democracy, it's dangerous and an embarrassment to have a federal government that doesn't step in when local law enforcement is violating the rights of the people they're supposed to serve. So they're doing that in part to send that message that, you know, This is actually what what law and order means. It means policing pursuant to the law and the rules. And it's also recognizing that these individual prosecutions of officers for bad acts are never going to be enough because those criminal acts don't happen in a vacuum. They are bolstered by cultures that make that kind of behavior acceptable and tolerate it for far too long until something happens.
0: So when you say a pattern or practice investigation, what exactly does that mean? Like what does the pattern or practice refer to?
2: What you're trying to figure out is is really two things. One is, are there, violations of people's federal or constitutional rights happening on a regular basis? Is it the closer to the rule than the exception? So for example, when you review the uses of force, are you finding that it's not a rare thing to have a use of force that was unreasonable? Or when you're looking at stops, how many of those stops appear not to have been supported by reasonable suspicion, which is the legal standard? And so that's the first step, is you're looking to see whether there are violations of the constitution. I should note also federal law And that's important in both Minneapolis and Louisville. The investigation noticed that the department would be looking at violations of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that's a federal statute that addresses, among other things, the rights of individuals who have behavioral health disabilities. Hmm. And that's a really important segment in policing. It's people who uh, might fall into mental health crisis, people who are autistic. And so that's the first thing that you're doing is you're looking at whether... There is a pattern of violating people's rights. But you're also looking at the practices that might be facilitating or causing those violations. So you are looking at their systems for investigating misconduct. You're looking at their policies related to force, at their training regarding their practices, at supervision, all of those things that might be causing those legal violations to occur so frequently.
0: hmm And so in cases where the Department of Justice does identify issues with the police department or practices or policies that they say are the cause of these bad outcomes, what can they actually do about it?
2: There's two things that the Department of Justice can do directly through this pattern or practice authority. The first is they write up their findings and they release them publicly in a findings report. Those finding reports really lay out for the public what happened and why. And I find them really important for affirming people in the community's reality, their experiences, and, and having the federal government come in and say, yes, this happened. We are affirming that. We are going to try to fix that. I think there's an intrinsic and value in having the Department of Justice release a findings report like that.
0: Interesting. So people don't feel like they're just screaming into the void.
2: Yeah, they've been heard and, and they've, it's been affirmed that what happened to them was wrong and needs to be corrected. And those findings reports are picked up by agencies all across the country to better understand problems in their own departments and how to fix them. And then the next step is if the pattern of practice demonstrated a pattern of violations of people's rights, then you can sue them or you can ask them to negotiate an agreement to correct the problems. So and that's usually what happens in the earlier days of this of enforcing the statute, a lot of those agreements were memoranda of understanding, which were basically private agreements that had to be enforced through contract law. We learned that for a couple of reasons, it was important to have consent decrees. Consent decrees have ongoing involvement of a federal court, which provides the kind of pressure um, that you need. In these and,
0: and can I just ask, uh,
2: what is a consent decree? Like, what does that mean? It's called a consent decree because the parties agree to it. So the police department in the city that you are investigating that are the defendants in the lawsuit are agreeing to it. It's not ordered against their will by a judge. Hmm. So you spend a long time negotiating the terms of that agreement so that it will be something that they can agree to. And then you enter that into court. You go into court and you actually enter it as a court order. So now they're under legal obligation to the court. To do everything they said in that decree, if they don't do it, they can be held in contempt. And the court generally has ongoing oversight of the consent decree. So calls in the parties on a regular basis to find out how it's going we will usually have a monitor to be in the department, to be reviewing documents, to assess how things are going so that it really allows a much closer look at whether the department is doing what it said it would do.
0: So at least in theory, it's not just a situation where the federal government is saying you did X. XYZ wrong and you should fix it at some point, that it's supposed to be in ongoing action or relationship where the federal government is basically monitoring the situation so that these local police departments do actually improve.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, the problems that have developed in these agencies are longstanding in the department. And the really tricky bit is that they really stem from dynamics not only within the police department, but throughout our society. And so that I think is the next terrain for DOJ is to really figure out how to look more broadly at what's happening outside of police departments in order to fix what is happening within police departments.
0: So I'm curious how this involvement by the Department of Justice might play out in a city like Louisville, where, of course, Breonna Taylor died. There have been a lot of tough questions about the police department there. What exactly is the possibility for change there through this federal process?
2: I think that the Department of Justice is going to look at a lot of the same issues it has looked at in the past, um, especially in Louisville and Minneapolis. Use of force is obviously going to be a big topic. Hopefully the use of SWAT teams will be something they look at closely in Louisville. But one of the things I'm most excited about or I think is most encouraging about the investigations in Louisville and Minneapolis is that the Department of Justice is emphasizing that they're looking at the treatment of people with behavioral health disabilities. And what I see in that is DOJ recognizing what communities have been saying, that we need a different response to some sorts of calls. We need somebody else besides police. DOJ has known that for a while, but what's always been challenging about that is that the funding for police generally comes from the city, while the funding for mental health systems generally comes from a county. So when you're DOJ and you're going in and you're investigating the police department or a city, you're not actually investigating the entity with the power to fix the problem most directly. But what's great about Louisville is that it is coextensive with Jefferson County. Hmm. So you have that that mental health care funding stream coinciding with the policing funding stream, which may really provide an opportunity for DOJ to come up with some solutions for how you create a better response to calls from people who are in a mental health crisis that other jurisdictions can use to try to create the similar kinds of uh, models to have a better response in their own communities.
0: That's really interesting because I feel like the thing that I've heard from police departments and specific police officers is that, look, we don't want to respond to these mental health calls either. Like we are not prepared oftentimes to do this and we wish that it were somebody else's problem, but there's nobody else and there's no funding for that. So it is left to us and it shouldn't be surprising that we're not perfect at it. That's
2: exactly right. And in my experience has been the same. I have talked with so many police officers who Absolutely don't wanna be don't wanna be the one responding to a mental health call or, you know, just the call of someone, hey, there's there's someone who's homeless who's sleeping on the stoop outside my house. Why is that a police call? Or, you know, there are kids hanging out in the park. Why is that a police call? There are so many things that we have normalized as requiring a police response. And even police, you know, they, they, that's not what they signed up to do. It's not what they want to do. And we don't need someone with a badge and handcuffs and a gun. And so I feel like this is a start by DOJ to start addressing that. And if they can do that, then we really are taking a step forward with these
0: investigations. So you used to conduct these kinds of investigations that that resulted in these kinds of consent decrees, correct? Yes. What is that like? What are the successes and limitations of those kinds of investigations and these consent decree relationships at the end of the day?
2: Yes, that's a great question. When I first started doing this work, it's humbling work. It's really important work. I felt privileged every day to be able to do it. You are going into communities, you're learning about the communities, you're learning what the particular concerns are. In many respects, the interactions with police are the same wherever you go, but in many respects, they're really different and play out very differently. And so part of what you're doing is is trying to learn what's going on in this particular community. And you're talking with people, you're learning from people, you're trying to figure out what's an aberration sort of experienced by one you know person versus something that happens routinely. And then you're trying to figure out why, and then you're trying to figure out how to fix it. And when I first started doing this work, and especially when I was a monitor, I was a monitor of a police consent decree in in Oakland, I really wanted to fix a department. When I would go in and there's a department, and let's just call it a a D minus department, and I wanted to make it an A plus. If we're going to be in here and and be doing all this work, it should be an A plus department by the time um, we leave. And I learned over several years that consent decrees can't do that. Hmm. They can get a department up to a solid C plus, B minus. They have done their work and it's time to move on to another D minus department. And it it becomes the work of others to bring policing up to what it needs to be. And there's a few reasons for that. Yeah,
0: well, let me ask why. Like, Why is it that a D minus department can't become an A plus department or even an A minus department? Like, Why do you have to settle for a C plus? We should never settle for a C plus police department. We
2: absolutely should demand at least an A-minus, maybe not an A-plus police department, but it's not the job of the consent decree. That's my only point. The consent decree, remember, the authority of the Department of Justice is to ensure that policing is constitutional or in accord with the law, right? And unfortunately, there's a lot of policing that's unnecessary and harmful, but perfectly lawful. DOJ tries to get at that to the extent that it can, but it To its credit, I think it recognizes the limits of its authority and and can't go beyond that. And in addition, there's just a lot of things that we ask police to do that as long as we keep asking them to do it, we're going to keep setting them up for failure. And and I'm talking about things like having police respond to calls where, where people are in mental health crisis or having police so involved in traffic enforcement for reasons that have nothing to do with public safety and everything to do with raising revenue if we keep doing that, we're going to have lots of opportunities for needless conflict. You're going to have the wrong tool for the task, and we're going to keep having these negative outcomes. None of that is about whether or not something violates the Fourth Amendment. It's about choices we make as communities and as a society. And that work has to be done in parallel to the concentric work, in my view.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. I'm really interested in in this experience of what it's like to be part of the Department of Justice, this kind of like federal regulator coming into these local police departments, telling them how to do their jobs better. I'm guessing sometimes experiencing some resistance to change. Like, what were the kinds of challenges that you came up against? I mean, even on like a, a, a one to one basis. I used to cry
2: a lot. Mm. There was a lot of resistance and you really feel like you were you were exhausted and you were working really hard and many people in the police department hated you for being there, did not think that what you were doing was, you know, at all helpful. And at the same time, sometimes communities would be really supportive, but sometimes they would be really suspicious, appropriately in my view, or just really resistant to even being involved. And so you really felt a bit friendless, um, but then you quickly realize it's not about you. um, It's about the work. And you find the people, even in the departments, in the police departments, who are so grateful that somebody from the outside is finally there to help vindicate what they think policing should be. Hmm.
0: So so then at the end of the day, do you feel like these consent decrees and the involvement of the Department of Justice—that that's like the answer to how to create substantive change. I do think it's part of the answer.
2: I think that in many places it is an essential part of the answer. We live in a democracy. It was an embarrassment and it was dangerous that in the last administration. We did not have our federal government stepping in when it knew that local police agencies were routinely violating people's rights. That's not okay. And we have a statute that the federal government has a responsibility to enforce to correct that. So that's part of the reason why it's so important. But it's also just important because these agreements can change police culture in agencies. They can change practices. And in doing that, they can save lives and they can keep people out of jail needlessly, keep people from being arrested needlessly. But I say it's part of the answer because there are so many other things that we need to do to address the kinds of policing that are lawful, but are still unnecessarily harmful, and to create the kinds of responses to our public safety needs that aren't police. We've absolutely come to over-rely on policing to meet our public safety needs. And as long as we're doing that, we're going to keep applying the wrong tool for the task and we're going to keep having negative outcomes. And the consent decrees can only do
0: so much to address that particular dynamic. Christy Lopez is a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center, where she leads the program on innovative policing. This story was produced by Lena Mohammed. And now one more thing.
1: <laughs> so
3: During the pandemic, the nature of my job, the way the news was, I did not slow down or or stay at home.
0: Lee Powell is a video reporter for The Post, and he flies a lot.
3: I went back and counted. I was actually on a plane 41 different times in 2020. So I got very used to the, the mask mandates, the procedures, the spaced out seating, depending on who you flew.
0: Lee says that for the first time in almost 15 years, two new airlines are launching in the U.S., One is called Avello, and it will start out serving small airports on the West Coast. The other one is called Breeze, and it will do the same for the East Coast
3: they're making a couple of big bets. First of all, that coming out of the pandemic, as vaccines become more widespread, people just want to get out or are going to want to travel. The second bet is that, that people are going to want to escape and they're going to want to be willing to try someone new, a new brand that hasn't been on the scene before. And the third bet is that There are enough cities around the country, enough airports that either have never had strong point to point airline service or because of the pandemic lost a lot of that service as the big airlines cut back and pulled a lot of flights. The key for both of these new airlines, Breeze and Avello, is going to be finding these smaller secondary airports that aren't like LAX in Los Angeles. These are airports that ideally are close to a large metropolitan area, as is the case in Burbank. It's about 31 miles away from LAX, but it's still within the Los Angeles area, which, you know, is close to 18 million people if you look at that whole metropolitan area.
0: And the flights will be cheap. Abello's maiden voyage from Burbank to Santa Rosa cost passengers just $19, at least until you read the fine print.
3: The challenge for these Startup airlines and these ultra low cost airlines is going to be around customer service because it is a case where it is a la carte pricing, where you're going to pay a low cost for your ticket, but that really, all that guarantees is is a seat on the plane. Anything else, baggage, where you sit, if you want a window seat, if you want more room, that's all going to add up and cost extra. And so at times, these startup airlines, these ultra low-cost airlines have had challenges when it comes to sort of customer service and public perception. And then there's a problem of timing. This has been the worst possible time ever in the history of the airline industry when this pandemic struck. Um, So it would seem that coming out of this with no one traveling, hardly anyone traveling, with airlines furloughing thousands of people, others shutting down completely, laying off employees, why would you start an airline at a time like this? Well, if you're one of these airline entrepreneurs, you've done this before, and you know the industry enough so that you can kind of around corners and kind of maybe see things that other people aren't necessarily seeing and that's what you're hoping for is you're thinking that okay it's been a terrible time people have been sitting at home no one's been traveling but that probably isn't going to be the case forever i uh connected with andrew levy who uh just launched a velo
1: americans travel we travel and we have our, our lives are spread all across the country you don't think twice about moving to different places, and you you rely on air transportation. And even before the vaccine started rolling out the way they have been, which is just amazing, and it's incredible, and it's gonna expedite more and more people feeling safe about traveling. But even before that, people were starting to travel again because I think people were just not going to alter their lives permanently.
3: I did talk to some passengers, uh, both uh, anticipating a trip and people actually on the first flight, which was going from Burbank up to Santa Rosa, which is, you know, kind of Napa Valley wine country uh, north of the San Francisco Bay Area. And the feeling was, you know, if it's $19 or if maybe a little higher, maybe $30 by the time they booked it, you know, what do they have to lose?
0: As soon as I heard that there was going to be a destination right by Yellowstone National Park. I was like, okay, I have to get this ticket. I wanna go fly over there. And then I heard that the flights were as cheap as $19. And I was like, okay, well, everything is lining up perfectly. It's a really great price. And especially because we haven't traveled for so long, we're definitely looking forward to getting back out there and visiting some places that are on our bucket list.
3: Sure, it's new. It's something that they haven't flown before, but the price was so right. The places that they were flying to, you know, folks wanted to travel to, why not? Lee Powell
0: is a video reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svrnovsky and Rena Flores. Post Reports has been nominated for a Webby, a very cool award for excellence on the internet. An episode of ours is nominated in the best news and politics podcast category. To win, we need people to vote for us, and we'd love if you could help. To cast a vote for our show and for other Post podcasts, find a link to the Webby Awards in today's show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.